Amen. Hey, good morning, church. My name is Daniel Wagner. I'm the executive pastor of ministry here, and it's really a privilege for me to be up here. Uh, second week, back-to-back, as uh, one rapper would say, unnamed rapper. I'm glad that uh, you guys are with us this morning as we are in week two of an Advent series. Advent, maybe something you're not familiar with. Maybe you didn't grow up in an Advent family or an Advent church, but Advent is just the coming of something notable or noteworthy, and in this case, it's the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, born into the world as a child, to go on and live the most remarkable life, fully God, fully man, headed to the cross the whole time so that he might atone for our sin. The things that we've done, God called us not to do, and the things that we didn't do that God called us to do, and we see that because of our sin, there's punishment for us, separation from him, but Jesus, from his very coming, was about restoration. Last week, we talked about that, the incarnation, and this week, I want to talk about two primary themes, uh, one in hope and one in light, the opposite of that, darkness. And at that, I want to publicly, um, you know, confess and repent of a sin that I committed last week on the stage. This is a picture of Mike Leach, the rightful coach of Mississippi State. This was uh, something Austin Moore was the creator of and sent to Susan Green. This is what I walked into in the office on Monday morning, which apparently is a really big deal for some of you guys. I think I could have been up here and been like, John 3.16, Satan so loved the world. That, and y'all would have been cooler than when I said the wrong Mississippi State football coach. So one, there's that. And two, I'm sorry. But it was important for several of you last week to help me shed some light on the subject. That's one of my favorite colloquialisms, shed some light. And it makes me think about that, that the opposite of light would be what? Darkness. And darkness uh, throughout the Bible and even the way that it's uh, become pervasive in our world, in our society today, the way that we use the English language. So this concept of darkness would be ambiguity, unclarity, confusion, generally all things bad. What I want us to look at today is a passage that many of you are probably familiar with, where we'll be in Isaiah chapter 9 is where we'll end up today. If you have a Bible in front of you or a Bible you brought with you, you can turn there to Isaiah chapter 9. And before we get to 9, we'll spend some time in 8. And before we're in 8, I want to tell you what happened in 7 so that we can see the context for this great Christmas hope. So we see in Isaiah chapter 7 that there is a bad king, a wicked king, who, when he faces some military pressure from the neighbor to the north, Israel, uh, and a connected nation of Syria, we see this wicked king who's in the southern kingdom of Judah at the time. He, instead of trusting the Lord for deliverance, trusting the Lord for security, he instead gets in bed with the enemy ultimately. And the enemy here is Assyria. Assyria, if you're a student of the ancient Near East or of the Bible, you know is one of the great conquering kingdoms that we see come in and overthrow God's people and put them in a life of captivity and subjectivity. So we see here that Assyria really are the bad guys in this story. And just like we know in the darkness of our world today, where we see narratives that seem endless, this is as bad as it gets, Suffering is great in the world. And we see that in our media, I heard a pastor say this week, I love this line, that our media really has no bias to the left or to the right, but instead a bias down. And it can feel like that in our lives, that all we hear is darkness. All we see is despair. All we see is what could be better, and we become choked out by this overwhelming and crushing darkness. As the philosopher Kanye West said, ain't nothing on the news but the blues, and that's what it feels like sometimes. 
is that we're surrounded by this darkness to a point of despair and hopelessness. That's not too dissimilar to what we would see these people in Judah and in Israel experiencing Assyria, this great power who would come and who would rape and pillage and who would steal, who would enslave and overthrow. They are coming. What do we do? Who's going to save us? Where can we find stability in the midst of this chaos? We see this wicked king turn instead to that very force, praying that they would take care of him. And we see that as an unrighteous thing, an unwise thing. And there are several things for us to learn together before we see this great Christmas passage in Isaiah chapter 9. The first thing we see about darkness is that darkness is something that we interact with. As you know, when you live in the world, you're choked out by the news that exists out there and even the darkness in your own life, the things that you wish were better, more full, were perfect, but are not your own darkness. We see that darkness takes us in a direction, and we look at that first, that there's a direction that people go in the darkness in verse chapter 8. Let me see. Yeah, there we go. Got it. The direction that people go in darkness. And I'll read Isaiah 8, starting at 11 for us. For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me, and he warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread, but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both the houses of Israel and a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble upon it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and they shall be taken. What do we see here? That there are people who see this coming darkness and they respond in two different categories. There's a group of people that would try to explain away or over-invent or to make sense in their own worldview. And a group of people who would choose to be faithful, to see the Lord, that he would help them endure this coming and crushing darkness. So what we find in this passage is what I know is true for you, it's true for us, and it's true for the world, is that we will experience darkness, but the way we respond is an option. See, darkness is a guarantee, but our response is a choice. We will all face darkness. The darkness that we encounter as we live in the world and the darkness that you invite in in moments of disobedience. The way that people that you love and you trust and you let in, they disappoint you and they affect you and the things you've inherited, perhaps. We see that darkness in our life is a guarantee, but our response is a choice. And we see some prohibitive language. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And one of the things that we see here, don't fear. But the next one we see is, don't call conspiracy what they call conspiracy. And I love that in this passage, that we see conspiracy here in this Hebrew. It's kashar. And I love this. It's this concept of trying to explain and trying to make sense, trying to draw conclusions and trying to make this picture of how things can make sense in a great darkness. Can you imagine a group of people who should be submitted to the Lord, who should trust that he's working in the world, who should trust that maybe he has a plan and maybe he's in the driver's seat, not asleep at the wheel, go to a place of conspiracy? It's fascinating to think about. 
So we see conspiracy decried. Instead, that we would not call conspiracy what the people call conspiracy, but we would say, God, even in the midst of this darkness, we can trust that you might just have a plan. And we see these two things are a guarantee for all, but the second, particularly for the believer, that there's darkness and that in the darkness, sometimes God can use it for discipline. Now, no one loves discipline. No one invites discipline into their life. Only the disciplined among us. I think about my guy, Chris Bixon, who was in the first service. He ran, like, I don't know, dozens of miles the other day. Not because he has some kind of mental deficiency, but because he's disciplined and he loves. He loves honoring the Lord with his body and he has a, a hobby and it's a beautiful thing. But the discipline it takes to go and do that, he didn't just roll out of bed and go and run a bunch of miles. That's not how it worked. He wouldn't be here today. He'd be dead somewhere. But instead, discipline, he's given it to himself because he could see that adversity would breed something in him. And so God invites the same in our life. But we see darkness as a guarantee for all that God, in his economy, allows darkness. He says, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The God might not be the architect of your suffering, but that he is one who would allow it to produce something in you under his will and his plan. We see this in Hebrews 12, that they, it refers to uh, parents, authority figures in our life, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, But he, that's the Lord, disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. For at the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And I love that, that there's this picture that we can see where God in his economy again would allow darkness, in some mix of his providence and human freedom, we would see that even though darkness exists, that God might want to use it to work and produce something in us. Are we open to the darkness? Do we invite in sinful darkness into our life? Perhaps. We'll talk about why we shouldn't do that later. But are you open to what the things out there might produce in you if you give those things to the Lord. We see this as an encouragement for these people in this passage that how we treat God determines how we experience God. And I would say that's true in all seasons, but particularly in seasons of darkness and suffering. If things in your life right now are hot, if you feel like the heat is turned up, if you feel like you're under pressure and like the darkness of the world is choking you out, I would say this, that you have a beautiful opportunity to experience God in a rich way. But how you treat him will determine how you experience him. We see this in Isaiah 8. The Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy, holy, set apart, beautiful, higher than, worthy. Let him be your fear and let him be your dread. Don't be worried about the things that God has in control. Don't let those things consume you. Instead, look and trust him. We see the treating here, how people would view God, how they would experience God, what they would believe about God, that that would be a determinant of how they interact with darkness. He'll become a sanctuary 
and a stone of offense, a rock of stumbling to both of the houses, a trap and a snare. So we see to the faithful, to the people that are committed to him, that would see that he's a protector and a provider and he's good and he can sustain us in the darkness and deliver us through it. We would see he's one that we can trust and find safety in. But for the others, the one that would conspire, the ones that would say, God, if you're there, do you even care? You feel like a bully from heaven with a magnifying glass and an anthill. You love to watch me squirm, Lord. To those people, he would be a trap and a snare. To people who can't make it make sense in their own finite way and reject the infinite wisdom of God. We see how we treat God. It determines how we experience God. If you know me, you've been around my teaching for a while, you know that I've been really richly blessed by the ministry of this man, this guy, Horatio Spafford here, lived in the 1800s. He was a prominent lawyer in the Chicago area, made lots of great financial investments along the lake there. Uh, had a wife and several beautiful children, and Horatio's life looked like it was up and to the right for a while, but in 1870, things sort of started to take a turn. He and his wife lost their only son, Horatio Jr., to scarlet fever at four. What a great loss. And the next year, 1871, the Great Chicago Fire wiped out all, essentially, of his financial investments. So Horatio, having suffered the loss of a child and suffered the loss of what at least looked like worth, financial worth in the world, we see uh, his faithfulness, his commitment to the Lord over the next few years, that people would speak of him as a man of great faith and remarkable character. And then in 1874, he has seen the toll that the last couple of years had taken on his family, his wife, and his four remaining daughters, to the point where he decided it was time to send them on a vacation. He was going to go with them across the Atlantic Ocean into Europe. They were going to accompany their friend D.L. Moody, Dwight Moody, uh, who was an evangelist at the time, as he would go and do some ministry in Europe. So he loaded up his family uh, and sent them on ahead because some last-minute business had kept him in Chicago. And as they were crossing across the Atlantic Ocean, Uh, His family was in what before the Titanic was the greatest uh, commercial uh, sea accident of all time. So in that crash, Horatio lost the other four children that he had. His wife and four children were plummeted into the water. Only his wife survived. And Horatio from Chicago received this telegraph, which read, survived alone, saved alone, what shall I do? So Horatio, like any good husband, immediately got on the next boat that he could and headed to go and be with his wife as they grieved and figured out what was next for them. And as he was on the boat, the captain came on the intercom and said, this is the spot where the ship went down. And Horatio, a man of great faith, penned the words that so many of us have sung and a modern psalm that's done ministry to my soul and to yours too. He wrote, it is well with my soul. So over the spot where he lost his children, what feels like the lowest point of all, we see him write, when peace like a river attendeth my way. How could he know such great peace and such great darkness? Well, he had seen God as faithful in his good days and had not given himself to the darkness in his previous sufferings. What a great faith. What a great example for us. But we see some in this passage in Isaiah 8 and some that we would experience in our life when time's hard, when the world chokes you out, when you go into your own depression and you're downcast, some would choose to double down on darkness. 
They pour a double shot of the wrong stuff, and they use darkness to cope with the darkness around them. We pick up here in verse 19. When they say to you, inquire of the mediums and of the necromancers who chirp and mutter, should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? No, to the teaching and to the testimony. If not, they will speak it according to this word. It's because they have no dawn. This idea that there's no light, no hope, no coming goodness. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they're hungry, they'll be enraged and they'll speak contemptuously against their king and against their God. And they'll turn their faces upward and they'll look to the earth. But behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. And they'll be thrust into this thick darkness. What do we see here? That as this darkness comes and it chokes some, they would choose to look to their own things. They'd choose to look to sin. They'd choose to look to their own self-sufficiency. They would go and try to find answers and find deliverance. It says here in Necromancers. Now, you may not consort with and consult the dead in your times of darkness, but you go somewhere when darkness seems to choke the life out of you. What is it? A secret addiction, a relationship on the side, an old habit, a deteriorated thought life, more spiraling anxiety. Where do we go in our darkness? And in what ways do you double down on the darkness in your life? But we see this, that when we double down on darkness, when we look to things outside of God for deliverance and for providence, we see these things also true in us and in the world, that there's distress, that these things that we hope are going to fix it, they don't fix it, and we spiral from distress. And then, yes, physical, material hunger was coming for these people that were going to be ruled with an iron fist by this terrible nation. But hunger we might experience in a physical sense if you follow your vices to the point of ruin, but even a hunger that we could experience in a spiritual and an emotional sense in this day, that we would long for something and have a satiety that would never be filled in these things that we could seek instead of the Lord. Rage, that because of our despair, that we would become enraged, that we would lash out and cry out against the things around us. And then that would turn to contemptuous speech. I know that in my life, when I give way to the darkness and I go and I do my things my own way and, and I give it in my vices, that I'm horrible to live around and to be around. My wife's in the room. She could probably testify to that. We become full of this contemptuous speech and then that leads to this concept of an upward face, a face lifted in pride that would try to reckon with and bargain with God for him to come down here and to do things our way. And we see that then they would look to the earth, that they would look for deliverance and look for safety and provision and it's too late and not in God's way. And that leads to anguish, to despair. And then they're in this place of thick darkness is what the passage calls it. Thick darkness. And you might have, and you might even today be in a spot where you've followed your own way and you've tried to engineer your life to do your will that you could be in a spot of thick darkness to which you feel like there is no deliverance. We see before this great Christmas hope this deep anguish these people experienced. 
And before we get to chapter 9, I want us to spend some time talking about darkness. Because if you're like me, it's so easy to think about the darkness out there. What's wrong with the world? What's wrong with them? What's wrong with those people? And neglect the darkness that's in here. So quick we are to point out the darkness out there that we forget about the darkness in here. But in us, whether a Christian or not, whether a person who's placed your saving faith in Jesus Christ, a person who's submitted to the Holy Spirit that he would make you new and renew you, still inside of you there is some darkness if we let it stay. We see this in Ecclesiastes, that God will bring every deed into judgment, every secret thing, whether good or whether evil. And what a terrifying thought, unless we know Christ, then what a great hope we have that his righteousness will be what God will reckon in and not our unrighteousness. Yet for us to think that our every deed, every thought, everything, it has a contribution into this economy that we live in. That the things we do, they affect us, and yes, they might even affect the ones around us. And I think about my own darkness and how I want to overcome it and, and what I need. And, and when I think about this in my own life, my own journaling and, and my own prayer life and discipleship that I do, I talk about gaps a lot, about how there's a space that needs to be closed, a, a, a chasm that needs to be bridged, something that's far off that needs to be brought near. When I think about a gap in my own life, I think about how when I was a small child, apparently I had great teeth and it didn't look like I was going to need braces. And then I went and got an x-ray and <laughs> they discovered that I had an extra tooth like a canine tooth coming down out of the middle of my mouth in between my front two teeth. Now, I have no idea what that's about. Like, maybe I drank too much milk. I know that I probably would have been someone that would have consorted with necromancers a thousand years ago before the advent of modern dentistry. But the weird extra tooth, it pushed some things out of place or would have begun to if they wouldn't have cut it out. But then I had gaps that were coming because of the weird disruptive nature of this extra canine tooth, which would have made me a freak. I'm so glad that it's not there. But the moral of the story is, is I then had gaps that needed to be closed. And I think about that in your life, in my life. Like, what are the gaps? What is the disruption? What's the extra tooth, to speak metaphorically, that you've allowed into your life, into your holiness and into your wholeness? And these gaps are things that we can't close on our own, that only the Lord can. And when I think about gaps, uh, I think about this, that it's an opportunity for us to ask grace for a particular shortcoming. God, there's a space here, a deficiency, and the way that I love my spouse or in the way that I work my job or the way that I neighbor or the way that I spend my money or, or God, the way that I'm, that I'm selfish, that I'm anxious. God, I, I need you to work in this gap, to choke out the darkness, to shut the door and not give it space. These gaps are the space between who I want to be and holiness and what I am today. Church, let's be committed to inviting the Lord in to close these gaps in our life. Now, how do we do this? How do we see it? What do we see in this passage? And what's true for us today as people who follow Jesus? It's this, it's, it's by giving ourselves to this beautiful light, this beautiful light we find in Christ. And there's a quote that I love from Erasmus, the church father, who would write this, that on these pages of the New Testament, you will find the living Christ and you'll see him more fully and more clearly than if you stood before you before your very eyes, that we can trust that all know, although we don't have Christ with us here shoulder to shoulder, that through his word and his church and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can encounter this great light and we can find someone who is a deliverer 
from our darkness. A deliverer from our darkness. The Christmas passage, Isaiah 9. But there will be no gloom for her that was in anguish. What was the verse before that? They are in thick darkness. But for those in thick darkness, we see that there will be no gloom for her who is in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he's made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. It continues, the people who walked in darkness, they've seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them the light has shown. You, Lord, have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with the joy of the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given. (laughs) And the government shall be upon his shoulders. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace, there will be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of the hosts will do this. Man, what a beautiful passage and what a great hope. We see this on cards and on commercials But to see this great light come out of this great darkness, this people who says there's this coming power and we thought we could trust it and we can't. The darkness of the world, it looks like it's going to choke us out and it's going to ruin us forever and there's no way out. We see into that this prophecy brought. And for us in our darkness, yes, the darkness within, but the darkness of the world, which feels like it can choke us out and lead us to hopelessness and despair, that there are no good days ahead of us. We can reject those things when we remember this promise, that this Lord has brought a great light into the darkness that changes things. But he brought it in a beautiful way, a remarkable way. We see that God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized us, everything that's ever terrorized you, that's ever terrorized the world, his answer is a child, a child born into poverty, relative obscurity, that would go on to live the most remarkable life, fully God and fully man, and would change the game for the world. And we see him do this from a point of great suffering, great suffering. Those lands, Galilee, Zebulun, Naphtali, they refer to the northern parts of Israel, And if you're familiar with the geography of the ancient Near East, you know that people were invaded in that time from the north because that was the way through. So what do we see when we put two and two together? We see that in this place of suffering and instability, the people that were conquered with the most force and conquered most often, that we see from that Jesus would launch his public ministry from Galilee. And we see then what's true today is that God would come to his people first 
where they had suffered the most. And from that place, he would launch salvation for the world. And that is true for the coming of Christ, and that is true in your life if you know the Lord. That he saw you in your greatest point of suffering. Yes, your sin. Everyone responds to the gospel who comes to know him, but everyone responds to a particular gospel. Did you feel left out and like you didn't belong and you found a seat at the table? Did you think that no one could love you because of the great injustice and terrible things that you'd done? Did you think that your addiction could never be overcome? Well, the Lord knew that he could deliver you from those things and he met you in your great point of deepest need. He met you in your point of deepest need. He saw your greatest need and he brought you out of it. That God comes to people first where we've suffered the most. That is the hope of Christmas. As I invite the band back up, I want to point to three things that this light brings. Three things we see in this passage that this wonderful counselor and that this mighty God, this Prince of Peace and Everlasting Father would bring. The first is increase. We see in verse three, language like multiply and increase. There's a harvest, things that come in and a spoil that's there to be divided that Jesus brings into the world and he brings into our life in the midst of so much darkness, which feels like there's scarcity and not enough to go around. Like the worst days are only the only things ahead of us. The best days are never coming back. We see in the Christian life and in the gospel work of the world that there's an increase an increase that when Christians go into a space, we should make things better. Bringers of salt and light that bound up in the coming of this light, there is an increase. Friends, where do you bring the increase? In your relationships, your work, your neighborhood, your missions, your finances, where do you bring the increase? Where are things better because you show up? That's the work of our Lord and that's the work we follow in. And the second is freedom. Freedom in a physical sense and freedom in a spiritual sense that these things, yoke and staff, that he has broken them in a mighty way. That he would see the things that Satan would use to keep you pinned down. And he would free you from those. That he'd bring you deliverance from the darkness you let in your life and the gaps that you don't close. He brings us deliverance from those freedom and then he can leverage those in such a way where he can take your mess, the mess of your life and make it your message. That this freedom he has given to you is a freedom we extend to others. And the final thing is this, it's peace and it's justice. Those two things bound up together because without justice, there is no real peace. This prince of peace, one that would usher in stability and security, the one who would usher in this great wholeness that we would long for even today as we look around in a broken world. We know that the internal peace we can experience is just a microcosm of a coming great peace that we'll see when Jesus returns and he makes all things right. But where are you today, Fred, the peace bringer? Where can you be a peacemaker? This great light brings these things. How? How is this accomplished? What sets our Lord apart? What is the driving force for gospel good in our Lord? And it's this, the last verse, zeal. 
zeal. I put the Hebrew word there because I want to talk about an Arabic word that was drawn for that. It's fascinating. The Hebrew there, kanaf, is fascinating. There's an Arabic word that's very similar that talks about jealousy that turns you red. I've got a small child at home. I know what that's like. She wants something so bad, she'll turn red. I'm like, whoa, whoa, take a breath, take a breath. It's not that big of a deal. But to her, it is. And this picture of zeal is what we see the same in the Lord. That God would look at the darkness and he would look at the suffering in the world and he'd look at the suffering in your life and it would consume him to the point of action. And that's what we see in the gospel. That our great hope, our great light would look at the bad, the wicked, the evil and say no more and come in one moment in time in the person of Christ and change the world forever and equip us to do the same. I want to invite you to stand up as we pray together. Lord, we love you and I'm thankful, Lord, for this church, these friends, every man and woman and child, Lord, made in your image, precious to you. God, I thank you for the way that you can make sense of our suffering. Lord, there's so much in the mystery of the way that you've made the world. Lord, and so many in here who feel overwhelmed by darkness. God, it's easy to fall into that spiral where we feel like world world is just headed down. Like every day is worse, Lord, than the one before. But Lord, to your government and to your kingdom, there is no limit. With you, God, things get better and better. So Lord, in our pain, where the darkness we can feel in this season, where we long for the way that things should be, but they're not there yet, will we look to you, Lord, with hope? Will we see you as a light, a piercing light that's always faithful, that never fails, Lord, that you would illuminate a way for us, Lord, not just to make it, Lord, but to make it in you, to make it for better and for good. So Lord, for each of us, would you help us see how we can be bringers of light, like you, not given to despair or conspiracy or fear, but Lord, to trust in obedience and faithfulness. Lord, I thank you for your gospel grace that can close the gaps in our life to make us more like you. Lord, would this church, your church, your people here look more like the church you'll make us in the end of time. So God, for each of us today, I pray, would we trust in you that you are hope stronger than our darkness. We pray these things in your great name, Jesus. Amen. I want to invite you in this time to worship in song, yes, and then even if you need prayer for anything in your life, if this is a great week or a terrible week, anything connected or unconnected to the sermon, we want to open this altar here as a time maybe for you to express outwardly what's going on on the inside. But we treasure an opportunity to pray for you as we continue to worship the Lord in song.